right after he he shot uh, Officer Jarrett, you know, he got back in his pickup truck, continued going eastbound on I-10. And I say about approximately two exits down the road, two state police officers, canine officers, um, they actually caught up with him. The suspect pulled over and they actually got into a, a gunfight. Uh, he came out with a long gun and uh, the two officers came out with their long gun as well. But there was quite a, dis- a distance between them. And they fired fired multiple rounds. Suspect got back in the truck and continued back uh, eastbound on I-10 again. Hey, gang. John Korea is so proud to be a brand ambassador for Heckler & Coke Pistols. They're, they're not a sponsor, per se, but they have helped us out so much. The whole team. We just drag our HKs around the country to training to the ASP conference, and we just know that no matter how poorly we treat them, they're going to go bang whenever we need them to. They're incredibly reliable, and they're a joy to shoot. And Paddle Magazine release. Please visit them at hk-usa.com, hk-usa.com, and tell them the ASP podcast sent you. Well, alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am yet again your host, Mike Williver, and I remain your favorite former Fed with us today. Another new friend of mine, uh, Adrian de la Garza. He is a traffic investigator, police officer out of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, his rather heroic video was featured on the channel a while back. I'll try to put a link to that in the description if I can, so you guys can go check that out as well. Maybe even watch that first and come back and listen to this. Uh, Adrian, first of all, how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Um, your incident was very a very harrowing one indeed. And uh, let me shut my phone up here. Hang on a second. I put some do not disturb. Let's try this again. All right. Now it's on shut up. Um, your incident um, uh, involved uh, an officer-involved shooting um, that didn't go well for a New Mexico state trooper who was brutally murdered on the side of the freeway. Um, doing uh, looks like doing a stop for a federal agency. And that video is just terrible and hard to watch. Um, but the conclusion of, of that entire thing is uh, a whole lot of officers from a whole lot of agencies pursuing this guy and hunting him down like the dog that he was and, uh, and stopping him from hurting anyone else. So um, before we go into all of that, uh, how long have you been in law enforcement? Uh, 20 years now. 20 years. That's a long time. Have you always been yeah. with Las Cruces PD? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where I started. So you're uh, New Mexico. I assume they have something like everyone else seems to have like a post or so. I don't know what they call it there, but like a police officer certification or standards and training. Yes. And so if you if you're a cop in New Mexico, if you get picked up by Santa Fe PD or Albuquerque PD, can you just transfer kind of anywhere you want? Oh, that's kind of the case in like California and Arizona. Yeah, you can just lateral right over. Nice. Okay. Um, and Las Cruces, what kind of city is it? I've never been there or been through it. I know it's kind of near El Paso. Um, how would you describe Las yeah, it's Cruces? Pretty, it's pretty close to El Paso. I say it's about 35 minutes away from there. Uh, but it's a pretty good-sized city for New Mexico. I believe we're the, like the third largest city in, in New Mexico. Population's like a little over 100,000. It's a good size. Really nice town. It's a good uh, like retirement community. A lot of sports around here. The, the high school teams are really good. Football, soccer, a bunch of state champs here. And a lot of like active people in this community. Nice. When it comes to like sports and stuff. So, you know, I think everyone knows Albuquerque is a little on the rough side. That's not a secret. Um, yeah. I would, I would dare to say Las Cruces is not quite on that level of with having that. Kind no, of we're like the opposite. All thanks to you and your compatriots. Yeah. Keep, <laughs> keeping crime yeah. to a minimum, hopefully. Um, yeah. So what other assignments have you had before uh, being a traffic investigator? There's a ton of stuff you can do in a police department. Like what other jobs have you had prior to this? Uh, well, when I started with the police department, I was just in the patrol section. I worked uh, great or swing shift, so I was on patrol for about six years, and then uh, I tested for the traffic position, be a motor officer, and I've been in that position since two thousand and nine. I've been there ever since. Yeah, once you get a good, it's kind of, it's kind of like a blessing and a curse of having a specialized assignment. Is if you get good at it. They want you to stay there forever because you're an asset and you have all the, the body of knowledge. And I don't think most people uh, consider how difficult crash investigations can be, but it can be a very complex investigation and can involve a lot of moving parts. Um, yeah. Would, would you say that you kind of mastered that that uh, ability to investigate crashes? I wouldn't. Oh. 
how difficult it is, you know, just doing the crash reconstruction and everything. And that's something that's always like got my attention on the law enforcement side. Well, the other, the blessing part of it, I was going to say is that, you know, once you find something you like doing, it's great if you can stick around. You know, I know there was guys on the task forces I was on in California, there were state and local guys that were just clinging to that task force assignment as long as they possibly could because they were yeah. so good at it. And But also they had an incredible body, body of knowledge. If you're working gangs in an area and you become intimately familiar with all the knuckleheads in the gangs and how they interact and who, you know, what cartel they're connected to and all the rest of it, you're an asset. And that's stuff you can't just pass along like any other procedure to the next guy who takes your place. Um, yeah, so definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, cause, I mean, just all the all the time and training that you put in for that position, you know, it's years worth of work. And if you're to move on to something else, you know, they lose out on a lot of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Is there, is there any point at which you want to explore something else in your career? Is there a next thing you want to do like canine or, uh, Airy no, to tell you the truth, uh, I can't see myself doing anything else. You know, I love being uh, in traffic. Like to me, it's riding the motorcycle is the best part about it. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a lot different than being in a car. Like, even though I got a cool cop car, I got a Camaro Super Sport. Like, the bike is still better. Yeah. You know, I, it just, it, it's kind of hard to fall asleep when you're on a motorcycle and stuff. You know, you, you enjoy it. You know, so it's, it's a slow day and you just go up on the highway, just go for a cruise and just relax. It's not the same once you're in a car. Yeah, no, not at all. And I think probably, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say you probably get a little bit more exercise riding a motorcycle than driving a car. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Especially right now, you know, we train uh, uh, the last Wednesday of every month. We do our, our motorcycle training. But right now with the heat, you know, being like 100 plus, it's freaking difficult out there. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, my son was just commenting about how hard it is. He's He's a community service officer here in Tucson and he's going to the police academy here in another month or so. Oh, yeah. he, he's complaining. He's oh, like, yeah. So you guys, yeah, they're a little bit hotter than us over there. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Um, I don't yeah. know if you guys have humidity or not there, but it's, it's pretty today. Cool. We did. Okay. I mean, it, it comes and goes. Yeah. He was just saying, you know, you, you get in the car and it's like, you're just running from call to call to call. The only yeah. exercise you get is getting out of your car and standing and then getting back in your car and running <laughs> to the next call. So, yeah, exactly. If you wonder why some yeah. cops end up looking like me, that's partly why. Um, <laughs> that and a, a crap diet. If the only place open, if you forgot to bring your lunch, the only place open is a convenience store at two in the morning. You're going to have to eat convenience store food. Yeah, or you got a fast food. Right. That's about it. Yeah, and that's suboptimal. So let's discuss the incident at hand. Um, I covered a little bit. I don't know how much you want to say about the the reason this guy was running, other than the obvious, which is. Uh, for whatever reason, he did not want to go to jail that day, and he murdered yeah. a, a New Mexico State trooper. He was using a, a long gun, and it's absolutely um, just cold-blooded murder. It wasn't like he shot him and ran. Like He, he shot him and then yeah. went around the car and finished him off. Uh, yeah. and by the time there, there, was, there was federal agents there with, you know, with med kits within 30 seconds, but there was, from yeah. what I understand, there was no saving him. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, that's the way I understood it too. So he's on, I believe he's on I-10, correct? Or is it I-40? No, it's I-10. I-10. So he's on I-10. So I-10, if you leave Tucson and go east on I-10, in about an hour, a year to New Mexico, the first place is Lordsburg. Do you know about yes. where that stop took place, um, where the officer was murdered? So where like Lordsburg is at, where you're talking about? It's still about another 45 minutes. Okay. You know, it's, it's Lordsburg and then Deming. Right. And then from Deming, it's Las Cruces. So it was between like Deming and Las Cruces where this happened. And was it was it as remote as it looked on the video? Was it kind of out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. All you have right there is actually uh, like a racetrack on the right-hand side. You can actually see it there on the video. Okay. And there's like a little small casino on the left-hand side. But other than that, there's really nothing else out there. Yeah. And a gas station. That's about it. We had a, um, a civilian who rescued a Arizona DPS trooper a while back um, on our show. And, you know, he was, it was early morning and this trooper had pulled someone over who would then turn the tables on him and was straddling this trooper on the ground and beating him to death. And our guy saw that and stopped and ended up shooting the guy and getting him off the, the trooper. But what, what occurs to me is, you know, the, a lot of these troopers and like I know up in Yavapai County and Navajo County, sheriff's deputies as well, they work in the literal middle of nowhere. Like, and I always wonder to yeah. myself, man, if you get if you get shot or have a car accident out here, I mean, your odds of survival cannot be as good because you've got to, you know, 
even with life flight, you're waiting a long time to get, yeah, you know, real exactly. advanced medical care to you and then get you to wherever you got to go. Um, so yeah, it was, it was suboptimal. So he, he, um, murders this officer and then he proceeds, uh, eastbound on I-10 and about how long is it until he's engaged? You know, how long he was running until somebody found him and started pursuing him? So right after he, he shot, uh, officer Jared, you know, he got back in his pickup truck, continued going eastbound on I-10 and I say about approximately two exits down the road, two state police officers, canine officers, um, they actually caught up with him. The suspect pulled over and they actually got into a, a gunfight there as well. Oh, wow. Uh, he came out with a long gun and uh, the two officers came out with their long gun as well. But there was quite a, dis- a distance between them and they fired, fired multiple rounds. Suspect got back in the truck and continued back uh, eastbound on I-10 again. Passed the Border Patrol checkpoint and they were probably chasing him for about 20 minutes uh until i got involved so i saw in your video in particular you know you're for let me just say this all right i know you've heard this already but it bears repeating the the fact that you are pursuing this guy at all is shows an, an incredible bravery in my opinion the fact that he starts to shoot at you and i'm pretty sure make contact with your car multiple times with a rifle round yeah and you're calling it out hey he's shooting at me he's hitting my car and you continue to do so you don't have to say anything after finish saying this, brother. Man, I have I, nothing but respect for that. That is, um, you know, we've had some black eyes in law enforcement over the last year or so where officers didn't quite quite live up to what we would want them to do in certain situations. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. The fact that you kept kept pursuing and didn't even, didn't even slow down and continue to aggressively chase this guy, just that part is impressive. So once you, you get up, how long is it until you're the primary right behind him? Because I know if people don't understand how pursuits work, sometimes the primary officer will change depending on circumstances. So it isn't always the same officer or trooper in the very front of the pursuit. So how long were you primary before kind of the action starts in the videotape that the agency released? Um, so I'll kind of go back a little bit. Sure. The state police and the sheriff's department were actually chasing them. They were coming up to the uh, Love's gas station. And uh, I was actually in the center median near a rest stop, and I was trying to figure out, like, what was a good safe position to set up spike strips. And I didn't realize the suspect was already getting pretty close to me. So I was looking towards my left, my, towards my left, and I heard a couple of gunshots, and that's when the suspect was shooting at my car while I was in the median. And as soon as I saw that, you know, I kind of hesitated. I was like, oh, crap, you know, like, I wasn't expecting this at all. Like, I wasn't waiting for him to come by. I thought he was still about a mile or two down the road. So I just made the decision, you know, it's time to get to work. Let's go after this guy. I turned on my lights and sirens. Um, I got onto I-10, and I became the lead vehicle at that point. Because there was a gap between, uh, like, the sheriff's department and the actual suspect. So as soon as uh, I got off uh, onto the roadway, you know, just gunned it and just started going towards the suspect and came up on his right side pretty quick. And, uh, you know, I tried going for the pit maneuver, like, as soon as I had a chance. But as soon as I came up on that, that pit maneuver, you know, he just started firing rounds on my car. So I, would, I just kept backing off and kind of swerving like left and right just so I wouldn't get hit. I noticed at one point in one of the videos, there's other officers. I don't know if you were there for this or not, but I, I remember seeing other officers, maybe troopers. I'm not sure. And there was one plainclothes guy, like in a green Ford SUV or pickup. Yeah. And they were, one of them was trying to set up the spike strips. And then they were like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to say a bad word, folks at home. Um, somebody said, hey, <laughs> fuck this. And they went, they grabbed their rifles and like, we're just going to shoot at this guy because it's 100% justified to do so. Were you in that yeah. group of people or no? Um, so right, that part of the video where you're talking about, the suspect did. That's when he came down. They started firing at the suspect, but they actually hit my car. Okay. Oh, wait. The officers hit your car? Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, that's frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah. So I got... My car got hit a couple of times, and it actually shot out my left front tire. Which is so not my great. Da- my dash started beeping, and I looked at the dash, and it said, like, left front, zero PSI. So I, you know, I had, like, no no uh, air left in the front tire. So when you perform the pit maneuver, which stands for pursuit intervention technique, for those who don't know, when you did the pit maneuver, you were, that was the tire that was closest to his vehicle, right? If you did... if you pitted him from right to left. Your car went right to left. Yeah, so I pitted on the uh, on the passenger, passenger side. side. 
Yeah. So on that side, um, I was just riding on the rim by then. Well, I mean, going about a hundred miles an hour. You should, they should do a, do a little pamphlet for you about you for the, for the Academy. <laughs> like, yeah, you can still do a pit maneuver with a flat tire. Cause I, I think that would yeah. have dissuaded me from trying it. Um, yeah. you know, I think people see pit maneuvers, uh, you know, they see LAPD or CHP pursuits all the time, you know, on TV. And it looks like this very simple thing. The pit maneuver is not easy to do successfully. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how many times I went through it in training and I kept screwing it up. I kept going a little too deep in on the other cars yeah. where I was just kind of whacking into them or a little too far back. Yeah. There's a sweet spot there. Had you performed a pit prior to this? Yes. I'm, I'm actually one of the instructors for the, the pit maneuver. Perfect. I'm a driving instructor. Um, I actually had talked to the other, we had a meeting about, I said about a week or two before this incident happened. And we we're kind of talking about my Camaro because I'm the only one that drives a, a Camaro. Since I'm a traffic officer, we have different vehicles and stuff. Right. And I kind of brought it up. I was like, hey, you know, like if I ever have to do a pit maneuver, like on a truck, that's, you know, like a little bit higher than, uh, you know, like my front bumper or anything. And I'm like, what's the best uh, point of action to do on something like this, you know, to actually get like a, a good pit maneuver. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about, say, so like the only way you're going to be able to perform a good pit maneuver on this is actually get on that tire. Yet you have to go a little bit shallow and it's going to cause damage to your car and stuff. At least you have a good point of contact there. And then, you know, just do that quarter turn right. and cause them to spin out. So as soon as I came up, like that was the first thought that popped in my head. I was like, all right, we just talked about this, you know, it was fresh in my head. I said, you know, I got to get a little bit deeper than, you know, instead of just getting like the back, you know, rear bumper area. Mm-hmm. Cause I was afraid, you know, if, if I did it like the way we're taught or the way we teach it is like his bumper would actually get caught on my bumper or actually I would go underneath the bumper and, you know, and I wouldn't get a good pit maneuver from there. So I went a little bit deeper and actually got it right on the uh, on the right rear tire, and it, it worked great. Yeah, plus you don't want to be, I mean, obviously the guy's been shooting at cops all day. You don't want to be, like, locked up bumper to bumper with a guy to where you have no, no way to egress. Yeah, exactly. So normally, um, and I don't know how they teach it, how you guys teach it in New Mexico or for your agency, but do they normally teach um, that once the pit's successful and the car is spun to keep going beyond it or to stop where you stopped? Yes. So th- that's how I teach it. But at, when I was doing the, the actual pit maneuver, I was already trying to come up with ideas like, you know, in my mind, you know, like, Hey, like, what are you going to do as soon as you stop this guy? It's like, you know what? Like I made the decision because I knew I'd be, be behind the power curve. If I continue driving straight, like I say, I just stopped by the time I got in my car, you know, he's probably already engaging on me. So by the time I turned around and everything, I'm already a couple of seconds behind. So like the last second, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay as close as possible to uh, the suspect. And I jerked the steering wheel to the right and actually stayed like on his rear bumper the whole time. Mm-hmm. And my plan was just to get out of the car and just start firing, you know, pretty much like unload the whole magazine into uh, his, his rear window. But I don't know if you ever saw, there's another video that some civilians took from the outside view of it. Yeah. From like some construction workers. Yeah, like from an overpass, somewhere up high, I noticed. Yeah, like a cell yeah. video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, my plan kind of got screwed up because as he was getting pitted, he actually exited the vehicle as the vehicle was still in motion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was already kind of thinking too. And so he gets out of the car and by the time I get out of my car, he's already standing in front of my vehicle. So that kind of took my plan out of there. Like, oh, you know, he's already here. Yeah, now I got to do what I got to do now, if folks. If you haven't seen the video, there's one. I don't know if it was your agency that did it or someone, but where they slow it down as you're getting out of the car and you're pushing the door out, and the first thing you see as you look up is him just hunched. He's already yeah. in, he's already a firing position. I mean, you didn't stand a chance to assault him with a you know with a with a pistol, which is all you had in your hands at the time. Yeah. With a guy against a rifle, pistol versus rifle is unenviable. If you if you want to listen, folks. I have an older episode with my buddy Jeff, who um, was a SWAT guy uh, up in Phoenix, got into a shootout with a human trafficker. Who they, they ended up face-to-face, like pickup truck to pickup truck, after a failed pit maneuver. And our bad guy just came up with an AK pattern rifle and just started shooting right through both windshields at him. And he his M4 had fallen on the passenger side floor. Couldn't get to it. He had to roll out of his driver's door and engage that guy with a pistol, which is an unenviable position. As you know, Officer De La Garza is not where you want to be. So you pop out. Is it immediately that you're shot once you come out of the car? Yeah, so as soon as I came out, he 
he shot it at the windshield. So I guess he was expecting me to still be in the car. Mm-hmm. So it was around right through the windshield. And then I guess once he saw me that I was actually standing by the door, he shot the A pillar. And then he shot, you know, my direction, he shot me in the arm. And I was actually like walking backwards. Uh, Cause like the way where Todd is, we try to get behind the car and use it for cover mm-hmm. and just fire from back there. So that's what my plan was is to get to like a safe spot. As I was walking backwards, like, I don't know if I just tripped on myself or what, but you know, I ended up falling after I got shot and man, like that was like the worst feeling ever, man. Cause as soon as I fell, like I was just waiting for him to come. Like I kind of did, I was just looking up the whole time. Like, all right, you know, like I'm, I'm ready for you. And I, you know, I'm, even though on the ground, you know, I'm still going to fight. And, uh, you know, he never came. So like on the video, you see me put my, my left hand back on the gun. So I was like, you know what, since I'm on the ground, I'm just going to shoot out his feet. So I actually rolled over towards my right and I was about to take a shot at his feet, but then he, he started walking backwards and he kind of got out of my point of view. So since I couldn't see his feet anymore, I got, I knew exactly where, where he was at. Like, you know, I got plenty of room now to get up and, and engage him. So as soon as I got up, like in the kneeling position, I saw him like in front of my door and I just kept firing and, you know, until the fight was over. What kind of pistol are you running? What, what uh, caliber and making money? The, the Glock 34, nine millimeter. Okay. That's high capacity, I think. Right. Or higher capacity yeah. than 17. Okay. So how many rounds do you have? Yeah. Is he different uh, I carry, carry 21. 21. Okay. I have to say this, um, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying it, but I'm just going to say it. The amount of restraint it took for you to reload and not continue to shoot is commendable, is admirable, right? Because it was time to stop shooting, obviously. Yeah. But just the – I hope no one's – the kids aren't listening to this one. Cause I'm, just the fuck you factor of like, you just shot me. You just killed another cop. And you don't get to die that fast. You don't get to roll over and, and you yeah. know, lay down. Like, I want to inflict a level of punishment on you. And that's not how we operate as police officers. But, you know, the back of your mind, you can't help but feel a little bit of rage towards someone like this. The temerity. He, By the way, folks, anyone who thinks he was committing suicide by a cop, you're out of your mind. He, This guy thought he was going to get away. I'm convinced of it. He thought yeah. he was going to shoot his way out and go to Mexico or wherever it is he was headed. Um, and didn't have any intention on dying that day. Yeah. Once once the dust settles, you're shot. I assume, does someone pull you aside and say, hey, man, you're, we got this. Go sit down, holster your gun. Or what happens next? No. So, um, you know, once I had the slide lock, um, I reloaded. And actually, I was going to keep engaging. But I was like, you know what? Like, you got to calm down. I, I took a deep breath. Yeah. I can see, like, the top of his head was missing and everything. I was like, all right, you know, like, the fight's over. You did what you had to do. Now, like, you know, it's time to handcuff this guy and stuff. So once I took a deep breath and was trying to calm myself down, that's when the pain was just, like, instant. Like, that's, like, when my body realized, hey, you know, like, you're shot. I, I knew I was shot, but I just didn't have any pain at the time. Where, where were you I shot? took that deep breath. Where were you shot exactly? Um, it was So as my arm was straight, I was in that shooting position. Mm-hmm. It went through my bicep. It went through the armpit, and then it came out my back. Ooh, two, two, three? No, it was actually it was a nine millimeter. Okay, that he, thank, got, that he got me with. Thank God for small favors. Um, yeah, that would have been a much bigger. Yeah, role. so yeah, so when that happened, like I remember just looking at his because uh, his driver's side door was open. And I can see that nobody was in there, so I was like, okay, the truck is clear. Mm-hmm. And I, I told myself, right, you know, now you got to go down there and handcuff the guy. But I went to go holster my gun, and my arm wasn't doing anything. I just kind of freaked out. I was like, like, why isn't my arm moving? And I actually thought somebody was grabbing my arm. I thought that somebody was next to me. And I turned around. There's nobody there. So I was like, all right, you know, let's holster the gun. And I went to go holster the gun again. And still, like, my arm wasn't cooperating, wasn't doing anything. It just it was, like, in a locked position. Then I can see the blood coming down my hand and everything coming down, like, off the gun. So I kind of started having, like, a panic attack. I was like, you know what? Like, I saw the sheriff's department coming up towards uh, the suspect's body. And they started handcuffing him. So like, you know, I'm going to let these guys handle it. I'm just mm-hmm. going to back away. Like I want to just get away from this guy. So I started backing up. And then one of my friends actually ran up to me. He's like, Hey, like, are you all right? And I, I couldn't see him, but I can hear his voice. And I knew exactly who it was. And, uh, I was like, no, like I, I've been shot. And I asked him like to help me put my gun away. And he was like trying to get the gun out of my hand, but it, like, I had like a death grip on it. I couldn't, let, you know, couldn't pull it out. And he finally like yanks out of my hand and, and he holsters it for me. 
but like my arm just wouldn't work at all after that. So a lot of what we talk about here is aftermath stuff. So it's important to me to kind of go through this for other officers and deputies or troopers who might be listening. Um, I assume the first order of business was to get you to a hospital, but was there anyone there telling you like a union rep type guy or somebody familiar with the rules to tell you, Hey, don't, don't talk too much right now. Don't make any, you know, grand statements right now. You're not in the right frame of mind. Was that a thing that happened or no? Uh, not really. I mean, I already knew, you know, I've been an investigator myself for quite a long time. Like I knew I shouldn't be saying anything or anything, but, uh, uh, I kind of back up a little bit sure. since we were on the highway, you know, an ambulance or anything couldn't get to me because we had everything shut down because we didn't know exactly where the suspect was going to go. Mm-hmm. So they just threw me in one of the units and then one of the cop cars and, you know, we hauled ass to the, the hospital and we got there pretty quick. You know, it was like, like an X or two away, you know, I got there less than five minutes. The hospital is already waiting for me. It was nice actually. Cause uh, like as soon as I walked into the hospital, like the very first person I saw was my friend's wife, Marisa. Because so I was like, oh, thank God it's like somebody I know. Like yeah. I was kind of afraid, of like, man, what if it's like a cop hater or something like friendly that? And they don't want to face. treat me or something. Yeah, friendly face is a big help. Yeah. So as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, thank God. Like I, it was a huge stress. Like, all right. Like, you know, I've known her for like the last like 20 years. Nice. And she's, she's an awesome person. And everything's like, all right. You know, I'm going to be taken care of pretty good. It's so good. then once I got there, and of course, you know, there was a bunch of officers already waiting there. And, uh, my buddy uh, Ricky, he's one of the uh, detectives that was handling the, the investigation. So he was with me the whole time, you know. And he wasn't asking me any questions either. He was just like, just asking me if I was all right, you know, if I'm in pain, like, where's the kids? You want me to call anybody? You know, it was just those type of questions. So between the scene and the hospital, did anyone try to apply a tourniquet or or pack the wound or anything like that? I, I'm assuming yeah, so, through your bicep and not your back, a tourniquet wasn't necessarily the best course of action. Yeah, so if you remember on the video that someone actually took off my uh, my uh, my axon camera, it was on my chest, and they actually they dropped it on the ground. Yeah, and when they dropped it on the ground, you can actually see the view of like everybody like uh, that was working on me. Right. So they took off like my uh, my uniform shirt, my vest, my Under Armour shirt, and they actually put a tourniquet on my on my right arm where the where the the bullet wound was on the bicep, mm-hmm. and they put a chest seal on my back. Nice. And. Uh, like at first I didn't believe them because like I heard them talking. Like I wasn't looking at anybody. I was just I was actually holding on to my buddy Juan, which you know his, his wife was the one that was the, the nurse. I was actually hanging on to him with my left arm, and I, I was just squeezing him as hard as I could. Like you know, I was just trying to make like the pain go away. I was trying to focus on something else, but I can hear everybody's conversations, and they say hey, he's got a gunshot in the back, and I was like, wait a minute, like. How the hell did uh, I get a gunshot in the back? You know, like the suspects in front of me. So I was like, man, you're, you're like, which, which one of you clowns? <laughs> I was so pissed, man. I right. was like, man, I just got shot by a cop, man. Like it happens. You know, of course. Yeah, it happens. But once I got to the hospital, the doctor told me uh, that it was like through and through. You know, that was actually the exit wound. You nice. can see like the skin and everything was pushed out. So when she told me that, I was like, oh, thank God. You know, it wasn't a cop that shot me. So how long of a recovery are we talking about and how many surgeries? That's always kind of a standard question. I only had one surgery. Um, so like I still haven't fully recovered, but I was out of work for two years. And uh, finally the doctors were able to release me. They said, you know, I was good enough to get back to work. Mm-hmm. And so I came back in uh, December of 22. So it was, it was basically like 20, 22, 23 months. It was a little bit shy of two years. And uh, I'm actually still dealing a lot of nerve pain in my right arm. Um, it's actually gotten worse. Like right now, I don't have any feeling in, in my entire arm. You know, I can't feel anything on my fingers. It makes it difficult when I shoot and everything. And uh, I'm actually going to get a procedure done. Uh, I'm going to get stem cell treatment for uh, for my shoulder, uh, my the entrance wound, the exit wound, and I'm actually going to inject my spine, the C6 and C7. So talk to hopefully other officers um, who've been injured on the job. And, and it doesn't have to be a shooting. It could be anything. Uh, and they have to spend a long time away from the job. You can start to feel estranged from the people you used to work with. So were you able to, like, be in an, an office or the station or whatever, or were you home? And what did you do with yourself during that inter, intervening, intervening time? I think it's important to tell people about that. So 
like I'll, I'll be honest with you, man. It was it was so difficult because I just had a lot of anger. Like I just like I was just pissed off about everything, you know, how everything went down. You know, the officer being killed. You know, it it's it's a lot different. Like once you actually see the videos and everything, you know, it's one thing like talking about it. People tell me, oh, like the officer got shot. And you're like okay, because you know you're just imagining your head. But once you actually see the video, like man, it just took me down. Like uh, it's horrendous. Like a pretty pretty dark path for a while like a lot of hate towards everybody and and it's really frustrating too because you know i'm the one being investigated so like no one would tell me anything like i was always finding out information like on youtube or uh just on the news and stuff so it, it was just a horrible feeling you know it just felt like my friends didn't want to talk to me or something you know it's obvious that they couldn't you know they couldn't tell me anything but you know me being on this side now you know it was a totally different feeling and stuff so I kind of distanced myself from everybody. Like, you know, I was just going through a really hard time and uh, I was just keeping myself uh, busy with physical therapy. I, I was actually doing physical therapy four hours a day, you know, like Monday, uh, about three or four times a week. Right. So it was like having a job pretty much. And I was burnt out, you know, just from doing uh, physical therapy for two years for that long. I bet. Uh, but like my... How would you say like um, the best advice I could give somebody like on my type of situation or like something going through something like this, you know, shot, stab, run over or whatever mm-hmm. is I was so busy just all like on my physical side, I guess, you know, just trying to get back into shape because I've always been in good shape, you know, I'm a marathon runner I'm into bodybuilding and everything and. You know, I didn't want people seeing me as like being weak. I didn't want my kids seeing me like that I was injured and stuff. And I was just playing it off like that I was normal. But I didn't take care of like my mental health and stuff. And, you know, like after two years of just doing that, like I finally just, like I, my body just shut down. Like I had to take care of myself. So now I'm just kind of <clears throat> dealing with that stuff and, you know, really working on myself, just trying to improve my mental health and everything. Yeah, I mean, which brings me to the next topic. And, you know, I always do a pre, a very brief pre-interview with my guests. So I'm talking to my audience now. Sorry, Adrian. Um, and I tell them, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm a friendly podcast host. And I just want to tell your story your way. And when it comes to stuff like PTSD, uh, PTS, some people call it PTSD. Um, I've been told both things are right and are wrong, depending on who you talk to. Um, post-traumatic yeah. stress can... can during that pre-interview, I, well, I was going to say this. Um, I tell my guests, hey, if I get to a question you don't like, just tell me next question. I'll move right along. It won't hurt my feelings. I told Adrian that beforehand. But this question is about PTS, and it's a very personal thing to discuss. So if you don't want to talk about it, I understand. Yeah. But I'll ask the question. Um, has that manifested in your life in any particular way that you could tell the audience about? And I'm especially hoping you're talking to the soldier, the sailor, yes. the airman, the marine, the cop, the firefighter out there who's been through something similar to this and maybe is struggling with it. So I'm still struggling with it. You know, uh, it's it's pretty difficult, you know, especially like right after it happened, you know, because you're just so consumed with like a family, you know, everybody brings their kids, you know, just a lot of people talking. And I was just so overwhelmed with like noises and it would, it would cause me like panic attacks. And like I would tell my family like, hey, like, just please leave me alone. Like I, I got to go outside, get away from you guys for a little bit, you know, just let me calm down. But obviously, you know, they, they wouldn't let me be alone because, you know, they were so worried about me and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was just real difficult. But to this day, I still, you know, just being like at a restaurant, just hearing like everybody talking, you know, people dropping dishes or something or hear everybody's conversations. Like it's hard for me just to concentrate with the person I'm with, you know, like I'm on a date or something. It's hard for me to like be there present with that person Cause I'm so consumed by everything else. And I'm just like, I guess like the flight or fight mode kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like watching my back the whole time. And, you know, just my heart's racing and I'm just not very comfortable at all. It, it, it's pretty hard. Is that, is that something you're working on now or working yes, with someone? Working okay, with good. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah, yeah. So I, I tried a couple of things. I'm not sure if you heard of like EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried that a couple of times and everything and it has uh, helped me out and everything. Very good. Well, you know, um, 
we we appreciate people coming on this podcast to tell their stories. I know it can't be easy to relive this stuff, even even in a completely safe and and harmless setting such as this. Uh, talking yeah. about this stuff it, again can be painful. It can bring up bad stuff. So I hope that doesn't happen here today. But I I definitely want to commend you not only for your actions that day because they were nothing short of heroic. I mean, people. Yeah. I, I, everyone says once they've done something heroic, I'm not a hero. Uh, say what you will about uh, Adrian de la Garza, but he acted heroically that day. That's all I know. Um, and and stood tall and uh, braved really, really dangerous odds to, to stop a very bad person who was going to continue doing bad things until he got away or felt like he'd gotten away. And he didn't care who he killed or injured to do it. Um, yeah. So thank you for coming on and talking about that. You now have a friend in me personally. So yeah. I'm one of those people. Now, if you having a rough day, man, reach out. Um, you yeah. got my email, I'll give you. me my phone number and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm here for you. And, uh, folks do me a favor. Um, give us, leave us a rating, a review, talk about what you like about the show. What you don't like about the show. It's, you know, we're, we're just passing our hundredth episode. It's about two years old now. And, um, we're, we're set for some growth in the show. So, uh, leave us a review that helps get other people to, to get the algorithm to suggest this show to them, you know, as a possible thing to, to, to watch and listen to. If you're watching on the app, thank you very much. Uh, stick around for the Gutowski files. Uh, Adrian, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I don't want to let you go unless, um, we're sure we've talked about everything there is to talk about. Um, just like one thing, like I always bring up is, uh, like people don't really understand how much this takes a toll on your, uh, on your family as well. Um, that's something that, that I'm struggling with. Um, you know, especially cause now like, you know, law enforcement's a lot different, you know, like everybody's videos are on online. You can, you know, just Google my name and my video comes up and stuff, you know, it's just my kids had to experience all that. And my little one, uh, my 13 year old, you know, she's got PTSD from all this stuff. So it's kind of hard to like focus on myself, work on myself when, when the kids are going through it as well. So it kind of takes the focus off of me. You know, I got to work on them. And it's just back and forth and stuff. So I don't think people really understand that part of it. Right. Like, yeah, I survived and everything, but I mean, there's a whole lot that came with it. And it's it's pretty difficult. There's something I do want to mention now that you said that. Uh, you just jogged my memory, which is, you know, I say it half jokingly, but I think um, you know we we have a lot of private citizens who are firearms carriers. You know, proud Americans that listen to the podcasts who watch the YouTube channel. And I think there's a number of them who think that, you know, they're going to have their CCW or as a police officer, I'm going to have my sidearm. And then the, a, the perfect situation will arise where I have this completely justified shooting. And there's zero questions about the level of justification of my shooting. I will shoot someone, maybe kill them, maybe not. And then I'll just go home and high five my wife and have a martini and, uh, and celebrate the win. None of those things are true. Unless you're a psychopath, none of those things are true. Yeah. Uh, being in being true. in a shooting, a critical incident, is a terrible, awful, terrible thing to have to go through. So if you're listening to this show or watching this show right now, listen to what Adrian's trying to tell you. Um, you. If you can avoid it, avoid it. If you don't have to be involved, don't be involved. His shooting was the most righteous shooting of all time. There was, in my in this host's opinion, there was zero question what absolutely had to be done. And you can see that despite... How justified it was, despite the fact this guy was a complete and utter unrepentant scumbag who just murdered a police officer, it still affects people who are in this position. So, uh, Adrian, I'm going to put you on my prayer list as well, man. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And like I said, reach out. If you need me, I'm here, brother. Um, and uh, we're going to hit the hit the end button here to end the interview, but he and I are going to talk a little bit more. Uh, Adrian, thanks again, buddy. Thank you. Well, alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Gutowski Files, starring Stephen Gutowski. He is the host of the Weekly Reload podcast and the founder of TheReload.com. Stephen, how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty well. So Stephen and you? I... No, not too bad. We we always yeah. have a little pre-talk. You know, John and I, I don't know if you know this, Stephen, have done over on the app, have done a few sort of behind-the-scenes, you know, where we have a first watch of like a badge cam or a dash cam. And those yeah. have been wildly, wildly popular for some reason. My idea, by the way. Don't tell John to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm telling John, man, people would watch you uh, go for a walk in the morning and, you know, taping yourself with a selfie stick. Um, 
and I think that's true probably. So hopefully he'll do more, well, more of that. I there, think I think there's like a you know certain aspect of the behind the scenes like get your first reaction because you know, scripted videos are awesome and right. have their own advantages and like you get to actually put your thoughts together and and script out a video and and have a full argument but uh, you know in your mind going forward through it but getting your first reaction that's that's interesting too just to see how what your instincts are on a certain video right yeah absolutely so that's what Steven and I do before we hit the record button we we just we discuss what we're going to talk about and what we think about it. So this week we are discussing a member exclusive over at the reload. This came out, let me see here, August 18th. Um, and it's an analysis piece written by our very own Stephen Gutowski, what the government is arguing in the new Supreme court gun case. And there's a lot of facets to this, which are interesting. So Stephen, tell us what's going on. Where's the case from and why is the ACLU involved for crying out loud? Yeah. So this is a case called United States v. Rahimi. I think we, mentioned this a while back when the Supreme Court first took the case, uh, because this is going to be the first case that they decide on the Second Amendment since Bruin, which was the big landmark case on gun carry that they handed down last year. Mm -hmm. uh, that was complete with a whole new test of how to determine whether a gun law violates the Second Amendment or not. And so now here's the first chance for the court to refine that test, right, to come to come in and settle some disputes that have developed in the lower courts about, you know, who can carry what, what you can own and, you know, uh, where you can go. Like those are the big three things that have had different federal judges come down on different sides of. So now we're, this case deals with who, right. Who can not just carry, but even own a gun, right. Because Rahimi uh, is about a man, a Texas man who had a domestic violence restraining order taken out against him because he was accused of uh, assaulting his the mother of his child mm -hmm. and uh, then went on to be accused of many other crimes as well. He's waiting trial for a number of shootings he was involved with. Um, and, but he was convicted for owning a gun uh, in violation of this restraining order, which is a federal felony. And so that is the core of this case because the Fifth Circuit ruled that uh, that the provision of federal law was actually unconstitutional. It violates the Second Amendment under the Bruin Standard. And so the United States government appealed that ruling and the Supreme Court accepted it. And now we have uh, the United States, the federal governments, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, their argument in the case laid out in their brief. And so that's what the piece looks at exactly where what they argue. Right. And to see this over at the reload, you have to be a member. So consider going over there and getting a membership. Um, so the ACLU is, I guess I'm not, we'll, I'm not clear on how they, where their standing is in the case or why they would have submitted a brief about this. Yeah. Uh, so the ACLU, and we've got another piece uh, that should be up by the time this, this airs uh, where we do a news piece on, on the ACLU's role, which is they filed an amicus brief. I'm also more than happy to give people a little preview of, uh, that that members piece and talk a little bit about what's in the government uh, argument as well. But the, the ACLU comes in, uh, in uh, these are called friends of the court brief, amicus brief, where uh, lots of different groups file these in all the Supreme Court cases, right? These outside groups that aren't parties to the actual case, but they have some sort of interest in it, right? Um, you know, like the, the gun rights groups are some of them will probably file briefs in this case, even though they're not a party to it. And so you had a bunch of the, the gun control groups filed to overturn that Fifth Circuit ruling. Uh, they sided with the government, right, uh, obviously, in, in this case. And you have a couple, You have a bunch of other groups. You have law professors. Uh, you have history professors have filed briefs already in this case. Um, and so the ACLU filed their own amicus brief that, was for upholding the law. Although interestingly um, it was for upholding it in a more narrow way than what the government wants the Supreme court to do. Okay. Explain that. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. So the government's argument and, you know, we go into a lot of detail on it in the members piece, but just to give you a brief overview of it, essentially they're arguing that um, during the founding era, because uh, the Bruin test makes the government 
come up with historical analogs for modern regulations that mm -hmm. they have. You know, any regulation that by pointing back to history, to the founding era, when, when the Second Amendment was ratified, to show that the founders agreed that this type of restriction was constitutional, that it, that it fit with the Second Amendment. And so in the, the government's argument in Rahimi, they're saying essentially that, uh, you know, restrictions on the ability of somebody to own or possess a gun uh, who is determined to be uh, not a law-abiding, responsible person are consistent with that history and tradition of firearms regulation. So you just have to, the government can basically prevent you from owning guns, can take away your guns. If you're shown to be somebody who is not law abiding and responsible. And a lot of that is based on dicta that it's called in Supreme court cases in Heller and McDonald and, and Bruin where this court talks about how those previous laws, the DC's ban on handguns and, New York's ban on gun carry, effective ban, um, took away the rights of law-abiding, responsible Americans to, you know, exercise their Second Amendment liberties. And so that's the government's argument, right? Uh, essentially, you can restrict people's uh, gun rights if they're not law-abiding and responsible. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But I mean, again, if it's if it's a restraining order that's being violated um, as much. I mean, and I, believe me, I've said it before in the space, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm the last person that wants to see uh, one half of a relationship get abused by the other or threatened or, you know, beaten or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it, it, you know, we talk about the slippery slope. I mean, a restraining order, anybody can get a restraining order against anybody. I can get one against you right now and, and make all sorts of things up and say that, you know, Steven said he was going to come to my house and beat me up and take my lunch money, uh, doesn't make it true. So uh, is there, is, is there any part of this case that involves sort of a time limit? Like a restraining order can go on for a long time. So p potentially somebody without being, having been convicted of anything could be denied their second amendment rights for an, a protracted period. Is there any, in any of these cases, is there anything about sort of the length of time involved? Because that would be a concern if somebody were falsely accused, for example, and had a restraining order, placed on them by someone who was sort of making things up. Yeah. So there's actually the time aspect is one of the things that people, the ACLU and, and the government have used as an example of why the law should be upheld because it's not a lifetime ban. Like a lot of the other prohibitions in the same section of federal law, where you have what are called prohibited possessors, right? You've got convicted felons, people convicted of domestic violence, misdemeanors, uh, people have been adjudicated mentally ill and uh, you know, involuntarily committed as a danger to themselves or others. Those people lose their rights for their life, right? right. And there's very little chance that they can ever have them restored. Um, uh, whereas in this domestic violence restraining order situation, the, the prohibition only lasts as long as that restraining order is still active. Uh, however, I will say just to, to your point uh, about the potential abuses of this or the lower bar of due process protections compared to a criminal conviction. That was a significant point made by the fifth circuit when it ruled against this prohibition, you know, that, that was something that they found was not um, kosher with, you know, the second amendment with the constitution and uh, was part of their ruling. Now, uh, you know, you also talk, there, there's sort of a fairly broad interpretation um, of the government's power in the government brief, you know, not coincidentally, I'm right. sure. Right. Um, where, you know, they're talking about people who are not law abiding and responsible. Well, you know, what does that mean? Um, you know, you're like you said, this isn't somebody who's been convicted of anything in, in criminal court. This is somebody who's had a, uh, restraining order issued against them. Now in Rahimi's case, he, there was a finding that he was dangerous. It wasn't, uh, it was something where the judge determined that there, there had been previous violence in the relationship. And that's why he, the judge issued this restraining order. So uh, there is another section of that law. That's a bit weaker on constitutional terms. 
uh, where you just have a, have to have the restraining order issued against you. It doesn't have to be a finding that you're dangerous in any way. Mm-hmm. It just has to say that you can't commit violence against your your partner. Um, and some have, have taken uh, you know greater problem with that. Uh, you know, taken there's been more scrutiny of that section of the law. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, uh, for for gun rights advocates at least, um, or at least their supporters of Rahimi. He was actually found to be specifically dangerous because of previous incidents that he's accused of. Um, now he hasn't been convicted of those things. Mm-hmm. He also hasn't been convicted of the, he was, the reason they found this gun in his uh, home was because he was accused of like five different shootings mm. um, uh, later on. And the police searched his house in relation to those events, which he's still facing charges for, but hasn't actually been convicted of yet. Um, and so that's when they found the gun. And I think they found the gun near the restraining order. So um, he kind of left them in the same area. Not the brightest person, it sounds like, uh, potentially here, the, the defendant, which is, you know, usually the case in major Supreme Court uh, <laughs> incidents like this, uh, honestly. So, that, you know, there, there's Miranda was not. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say, a, a going, super going back to smarter, Mr. upstanding guy, yeah, Mr. Miranda, what a moron. Yeah, um, but yeah. So one interesting bit, though, is, is you talked about there. The government's view is very expansive. The ACLU one one of the things that's unique about their brief is that they take a more narrow view. They they say that the government's argument is is too broad uh, for what kind of power they have to restrict people's gun rights, and instead they focus on this idea that somebody who's been specifically found to be a danger uh, to themselves or society at large can be restricted from owning guns temporarily at least. Uh, And that's, that's where they come down. So they think that the law should be upheld, but not on the grounds that the government wants it upheld on, if that makes sense. It does. May I, may I espouse some opinions now, sir? Is that okay with you? Sure. Mr. Big time hotshot journalist guy. So I always try to specify when I'm uh, expressing opinions because Stephen is an actual journalist and has held much higher standards than I am. <laughs> Excuse me. But I will say this hard one experience after many, many years in law enforcement uh, is that uh, restraining orders really are good for one thing. Uh, well, two things. One is upsetting the person you're taking it out against and making them really mad at you. Um, the other thing is uh, in the event that someone violates it and you can get the police there in time, which is very questionable. And that person could be arrested for violating it and put in jail temporarily only to be let out again. The, um, so what I'm saying is a restraining order isn't really worth a piece of paper it's printed on other than to temporarily put somebody in jail for violating it for usually for proximity or for texting you threats or calling you or whatever, which is why your ability to protect yourself uh, with you know, before the cops get there is paramount, which is what we're all about at Active Self Protection. That's what Stevens all about uh, over at the Reload is the individual citizen's uh, ability and right to protect protect themselves, up to and including the use of a firearm. That's what all of this is about. So restraining orders are uh, a tool that you can use and law enforcement can use. However, um, th- this is off topic a little, but. However, your ability to defend yourself um, before the police get there is critical because you're just you're, they're just not going to get there fast enough when the person's violating the restraining order uh, in proximity wise, meaning they're, they're showing up at your door. You got a problem and the police probably aren't going to get there in time. So just something to think about. Steve, do you have anything to add for we uh, part ways? Yeah, you know, that's that's an issue. Well, one, I think that's uh, you should put it like a nice ad break in there for the the ASP. Plus, uh, yeah, yeah, the, oh, yeah, membership. the extra, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the other point, you know, it's, it's one thing that I that struck me when I was reading the government's brief because uh, they lay out the, all the details of what Rahimi is accused of and this timeline of events, mm-hmm. and you know, he's accused of, uh, you know, assaulting his his the mother of his child and threatening her with a gun and doing that in public and then shooting at a witness and. And then, of course, he's accused of this basically like crime spree, the shooting spree that involved selling drugs to somebody, then shooting at the person they sold drugs to, then getting in a road rage, road rage incident and chasing down somebody and shooting at them. He loves shooting back at people, later huh? to shoot at them again. He likes shooting at people a lot. 
Yes, and he uh, his friend's car was declined at Whataburger, so he shot in the air. These are the things he's accused of. Oh, boy. Um, and it's a lot. There's a lot of stuff, and it's accusations are very bad. Uh, one thing that struck me, though, to your point here, is that uh, he was never – like, none of these things drew law enforcement action in the, term, in, in the sense of uh, uh, prosecutions that stuck and landed him in jail. So – you kind of two things you can take away from that is one that law enforcement officials in Texas where he lived uh, didn't do a good job of addressing his many crimes uh, until much later on in the process. Right. Like now, you know, finally later he was arrested and convicted on some of these things, but um, he's only been convicted on the gun charge, uh, Mm -hmm. just the possession charge basically to this point. Now he's facing other charges. But uh, the other thing you could draw, too, is like this is what the government's accusing him of. But because they didn't actually do anything to take him to court over this stuff, we don't know how reliable those accusations are necessarily. Right. Right. It's what the government says he did all this stuff. But if we don't have the uh, he wasn't tried in a court of law for the vast majority of these things he's accused of or he hasn't been yet for some of the later stuff. But, uh, you know, so, so just to your point, like. I mean, maybe the restraining order was all that could happen. You know, that, that happens sometimes. It's one of the points that the government makes in, and that the ACLU uh, makes as well that, you know, s- domestic violence is a difficult thing to solve, right? There's a lot of situations where uh, the victims don't want to press charges for, and oftentimes can have good reasons for that, right? Like they, they don't necessarily feel that they've been treated properly by law enforcement when they, when they do, uh, report and then it's very it can be difficult to get convictions when you know it's it's a accusation from one person with no witnesses uh right there's just the only point i'm making here is that there are scenarios where restraining orders can be the right tool to use like you described um but also like that all comes with its own questions about uh due process and rights and and it'll be really interesting to see where the court comes out on it. I honestly think that uh, surprisingly, I, you know, when I went to read that ACLU brief, I thought it was going to be more similar to their Bruin brief, which was pretty uh, out there, I guess is one way of putting it. And sort of argued that uh, carrying guns in public makes it harder to, for other people to exercise their first amendment. It's sort of a chilling effect on the first amendment. Right. Um, to allow people to carry a gun legally in public. So uh, that's not a super serious argument and didn't get any consideration whatsoever. Nor from, should it have. From the Supreme Court. Uh, so I kind of expected arguments that were sort of more, some of these amicus briefs, they're kind of more publicity right. generating things than they are serious arguments that the court is actually going to really weigh. In this ACLU brief, to be frank, is... Uh, is not that it's much more in line with what this, the court has sort of articulated at this point. I could actually see them adopting the point of view that, that the ACLU lays out here. Um, and, and so I was a bit surprised by that, to be honest, because the, you know, the ACLU has been trending like a lot of single issue groups. Uh, you could even say this for the NRA in, in some respects towards becoming more of a identity group for, uh, you know, certain political sect, uh-huh. political sect, like, uh, you know, the NRA is really tries to appeal very strongly to conservative Republicans. Right. And by talking about issues that aren't really related to, to gun rights necessarily, they talk about immigration, they talk about COVID vaccine mandates, stuff like that. Right. Um, or at least they have. And then the ACLU, I mean, even, even, that Bruin brief is a pretty good example of like, why is the ACLU getting involved in Bruin to argue against a civil liberty? Right. Um, so it was a little bit surprised to see them go the opposite direction here. And I do think that their brief will probably actually be fairly influential in this case. Folks, if you are lamenting the lack of down the middle, same sober reporting on the second and all things firearms related, over to TheReload.com, TheReload.com. Carefully consider getting a membership. Stephen Rely and his team, by the way, which is growing, relies on your membership dues to fund their very important work. And again, I'll say it every week till I'm blue in the face. Nobody else is doing 
what Steven does over at the Reload. So we need him to keep that ship afloat and help it to grow and get uh, massive until he is, like, like, as I'd like to say, just sitting atop a massive media empire. Okay. Rupert. Never mind. Steven, you have a wonderful week, sir. And as always, you have the last word. Absolutely.